Just a heads up, the tale you're about to hear contains graphic, sordid, and disturbing information, but it's one hell of a story. In 1933 in Pompano Beach, Florida, at a time when the state was part of the Deep South and mired in segregation, the white owner of a fish market was killed when he was shot at point-blank range one evening during a robbery. One gun, one bullet to the head. Almost immediately, four black men were rounded up and arrested. Although they had nothing to do with the gruesome crime, their confessions were coerced, and all four were convicted of the murder. That's the way it went in the American South for hundreds of years. In most places, people looked to the sheriff or the police to uphold justice. But in Palm Beach County, the citizens looked to a man in a black robe who was seen as their foundation of moral strength. He was the heart and soul of the criminal justice system. And so when this case made its way through Florida's court system and arrived on this judge's docket, he knew only one thing to do. He ruled that the men deserved a new trial on the grounds that the original grand jury that indicted them for the murder was made up entirely of white men, which denied the defendants equal protection. A decision like this was unheard of at the time, in particular in the southern states. But this judge didn't care what the white population wanted him to do. He followed the law. The judge was a man named Curtis Chillingworth. But the case Judge Chillingworth is most associated with is not one that he presided over. It was the case that arose from his own grisly murder. On the night of June 14, 1955, Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie were abducted, taken three miles out into the Atlantic in a small boat, weighted down, then forced overboard, alive. Who went all first, him or she? Goddamn ladies first. Ladies, oh. <laughs> well, what the hell? How'd he take that? Did he tell you? Did you like? Did you like? This is Chillingworth. Every once in a while, I manage to struggle out of bed early enough to watch those magic fingers of morning light reaching out over the Gulf Stream, over our city, still and clear and quiet. This is West Palm Beach, my home. I'm John Moss. And I'm Jonathan Payne. Both of us grew up hearing about the Chillingworths around the dinner table. We were born and raised right here in West Palm Beach, which is where the heart of the story takes place. When my parents talked about the case, they seemed truly upset by what had happened. And this was years later. And I remember being completely compelled by this tragedy, basically because we grew up in a very innocent world. And my parents, as well as your parents and grandfather, knew the victims. It was really eerie that this could actually happen to someone that my parents knew. The story has never been fully examined. Well, until now. We immersed ourselves in the case several years ago, and since then, we've tried to unearth as many primary sources related to the story as possible. 
we tracked down dozens of people who were directly involved in the case or were close to someone who was. Although it had been decades since the events took place, it was clear the details had always remained on their minds. In the course of recording these conversations and interviews, we came across Judge Chillingworth's personal diary. Now that was pretty revealing because it gave us priceless insight into what the judge was thinking at the time. But ultimately, we knew we were missing the unobtainium, our holy grail. We'd heard that some 50 hours of surveillance audio recordings of some of the suspects had been made by the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. The tapes were crucial to understanding what really happened, but strangely, they were never admitted as evidence into any case. We imagined that they might still be stored in the clerk's office in the Palm Beach County Courthouse, but it turned out that the clerk had turned them over to another circuit court judge, and he had passed away. We were incredibly disappointed. It seemed the tapes had vanished. Ironically, we found out that the tapes had been within our reach the entire time we were looking for them. The judge who'd passed away had given them to a former DEA agent named Jim Bourne, a childhood friend of mine. So we set up a meeting with Jim Bourne. We then met at a downtown West Palm parking garage. Jim had the tapes in the trunk of his car. When the trunk opened, it was as if we were British archaeologists who finally, after decades of searching, had come across King Tut's tomb. And we were opening up the vault to see the sarcophagus. We looked down at a banker's box that was crammed with 50 smaller boxes with quarter-inch magnetic recording tape inside. And when we opened those boxes right there, we could see that the tapes were utterly pristine. There was no sign of deterioration. There was no visible dust. So immediately, we drove the tapes down to a post sound house in Miami and turned them over to have them digitized. And within a few days, the 50 hours of reel-to-reel -reel recordings were in a digital format. And we couldn't believe how fortunate we were. It was as if we were hearing fictitious characters come to life through their voices. Nobody liked him. I'm fully convinced he had no fucking information. No, he didn't have any information. Because later on, I read the fucking paper, they go to a party together and go home. The recordings are utterly candid. Now he, he sees that you are a threat to his happy life and to his being able to go on and screw other people. Thing. You're the only one. So now he brings me into it to get rid of you, to erase you. Now I have no doubt he has the same thing in store for me. Those tapes filled in a lot of holes in the narrative that we never would have understood otherwise and provided us with the foundation of a more poignant, more complex story that's been lying beneath the tale that was originally revealed. It's really a story within a story and no one's ever heard it before. Palm Beach in West Palm Beach area in the 1950s was essentially a paradise, especially if you were from a privileged family. The ocean was nearly gin clear when it was calm. It was like being in the Bahamas or the South Pacific. You could snorkel right off the beach and you'd see tropical fish. 
It was a place where people from all over the country saved up so they could spend a week there in the wintertime. And like a lot of places in Florida during the 50s, it was experiencing a post-war boom. Soldiers and naval officers, sailors, who had been stationed in Florida, remembered what a beautiful place it was and decided to move back and start families. So the population was exploding. And also air conditioning was introduced in the 50s. So it became a lot more habitable. Guess what we've got? An RCA room air conditioner. I'm a woman, and I know how much pure air means to mother in keeping our rooms clean and free from dust and dirt. Within a period of 15 years after the war, it became one of the most populous states in the country. Across the bridge from West Palm Beach and separated by the Intracoastal Waterway is Palm Beach. It's sort of like a principality. It's home to lots of aristocrats and socialites. It's also become a little more high profile these days because people hear that it's where the President of the United States stays when he comes down to play golf. One more thing about West Palm. It was Southern in terms of the culture in many ways. It was changing, people were moving down from other parts of the country, but most people spoke with a Southern drawl. West Palm Beach was in the South. It was very segregated. There was a black community called Pleasant City that was actually unique among black areas in the South in that all the businesses were owned by the people who lived there. There were no white-owned businesses, which was pretty extraordinary. It was a thriving, vibrant, black neighborhood. But like any mid-sized city, it also had a seedy underworld. When I picture the areas of town where you might find that seedy underworld, I think of the movie It's a Wonderful Life when Jimmy Stewart was shown what his hometown, Bedford Falls, might look like if he'd never been born. It's now called Pottersville in that vision. And he goes to the red light district and all these people are pouring out of bars and strip clubs. There was that element in West Palm, to be sure. By the mid-50s, West Palm had been in existence for about 60 years. There was still a segment within the population who were descendants of pioneers, people who came down to South Florida in the late 1800s. They became wealthy because they bought a lot of land and kept it, and also because they were very entrepreneurial. They still had, in the 1950s, a tremendous amount of influence and prominence in town. Judge Chillingworth was a member of one of those families, one of the most well-known and most respected his father came down to the area in the 1890s. He became a very successful attorney. His grandfather was the first sheriff of Palm Beach County, so everybody knew who the Chillingworths were. And he was born into this great family and certainly didn't disappoint in terms of his parents' expectations. He went to the University of Florida, graduated from law school early, and he was a circuit court judge, which was an elected position by the time he was 26 years old, which made him the youngest person ever to have that position. He was also extremely diligent. He worked really hard. 
very long hours. He was a stickler for punctuality. He was a very disciplined man. Absolutely. He was known to stand outside of the courtroom at 9.29 for a 9.30 hearing, waiting for the clock to tick 9.30, and he was in the courtroom. Damn, I'll tell you what, people in the courthouse, when they met him in there, that the courthouse was quiet. You were just about tiptoed in that damn courthouse, man. I'm telling you, when you saw him, I don't know, but he was a strong man. He was a big shot. He made a name for himself with his intellect, with his reasoned legal opinions, with his progressive outlook on interpreting the law. He was known for favoring women in divorce cases. He infuriated a lot of husbands with the division of wealth he ordered. He was also very sympathetic to women who appeared before him in other civil cases, and even in criminal trials. And the other thing that he was known for, and this was as far back as the 30s, was progressive decisions when it came to black defendants and their civil rights. That's something that not a lot of people know about the judge. Of course, Judge Chillingworth's rulings relating to equal opportunity infuriated the racist and reactionary demographic in the county. They saw the decisions as a threat to their way of life. But as a judge, he wasn't in a position to campaign for civil rights outside of the courtroom. He was ahead of his time. In many ways, a very extraordinary man. Kind of a Renaissance man. Of course, Judge Chillingworth also had to have a lot of courage to do what he did. He sentenced many people to years in jail, and sometimes he sentenced people to death, which, to say the least, upset the criminals as well as their families and friends. So there were a lot of antisocial people out there who were potentially unhappy with the judge, especially because he'd been putting them away for about 34 years by the mid-50s. One of the worst of these characters Judge Chillingworth had to face in the courtroom and to be concerned with was a guy named Daddy Jack. Daddy Jack was a young man from Pleasant City who in 1950 macheted three women to death one night in a rooming house. Daddy Jack was convicted of the triple homicide and then Judge Chillingworth sentenced him to life in prison. But what you have to remember is that in Florida back then, when you got a life sentence, generally you only served seven, eight, nine, ten years. Let the deal go down, boys. Let the deal go down. There so people like Daddy Jack, people of his ilk, were lurking around out there. The most popular criminal enterprises in Palm Beach County in the 1950s were the rackets. The numbers racket, which was called Bolita at the time, was extremely popular and generated tons of money. I ain't got no money. Especially in the poor black communities of Palm Beach County, in West Palm, Riviera Beach, out in the Glades. Bolita preyed upon the impoverished population. And then there was also Moonshine, which was essentially the narcotic of the age. It was a real cheap liquor, a real cheap way to get high that a lot of people liked because they enjoyed the taste and because it was very powerful, much more powerful, much stronger than bonded liquor. 
that's just like that guy that got shot in front of the old patio in the Lincoln Continental. Yeah. You remember that Barney was so yeah. upset about? Yeah. And well, he was upset. And I got quizzed for that. And I gave them the same answer I gave them on any time they please have ever questioned me in my fucking life. Upon the advice of my attorney, I declined to answer that question. Where there's racketeering and moonshining, there's always a threat of the mob, which has started to seep into South Florida in the 50s. A notorious vicious double murder carried out in Miami in 1955 illustrated that organized crime indeed had operated in the region. In that particular case, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Ferry were abducted from their home, taken out to sea, thrown overboard, and murdered by the Gambino family. Yeah, that was a classic mob move. They took out Mr. Ferry because he was going to testify against Anastasia himself. Anastasia was the chief of the Gambino crime family. Judge Chillingworth said that if they made their way up to Palm Beach County, he'd do everything in his power to make sure that he brought those people to justice. And in Palm Beach County, some low-level fringe mobsters were already weaseling their way in. And that was through ownership of the many strip clubs that were very popular at the time. They're all close to downtown West Palm Beach. There was a Ragdoll Club, the Palm Club, and the Chi-Chi Club. The Chi-Chi Club was the most prominent of them all. It featured Doreen the Aqua Queen, who used to strip in a giant tank of water that was wheeled onto the stage. And in a lot of those places, beyond the entertainment, there was illegal activity going on. And so there were all these fiends out there in Palm Beach County who were mad at the judge, and he had to be aware of that. But as far as we know, he never expressed that he was afraid for his life or his safety. He just did his work. He just did what he loved to do, and he did it for the people of Palm Beach County. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who suffer persecution for justice' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On the evening of June 14, 1955, Judge Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie had dinner at the home of Palm Beach County tax assessor James Owen. At dinner, they discussed an upcoming cruise around the world that they were planning to take and how much they were looking forward to the arrival of their three daughters who were coming into town to visit for a few days. Marjorie had been by his side throughout his entire career. She was a quiet, reserved woman very intelligent. She wasn't timid at all. She provided a lot of reinforcement and reassurance to the judge during the course of his career, in particular when he had to make a difficult decision in a case. After dinner, the judge and his wife headed down A1A through Palm Beach to the town of Manalapan, which at the time had about 50 residents. It was a very wealthy town, about eight miles south of Palm Beach. Most of the homes there, except for the Chillingworths, were mansions. And they're all isolated from each other by a few hundred yards. 
The Chillingworths had traveled all around the world, but this was the place they enjoyed more than anywhere else. The views of the Atlantic Ocean were absolutely stunning, with a calming sound of waves rolling up on the beach every morning. It was paradise, and this is where the judge and his wife of 35 years were looking forward to a peaceful retirement with their children and grandchildren. Although retirement was certainly on their minds, Judge Chillingworth still had a few months left on the bench, and in fact, he had a 9 o'clock hearing the next morning. So the couple turned in around 11 o'clock that night. You want to sleep tonight? I better stop this story. Go ahead, goddamn. I might as well get off my microphone. I often wonder about it. The following morning, Wednesday, June 15th, 1955, around 8 o'clock a.m., the contractor who built the Chillingworth Beach House, Frank Ebersold, was scheduled to replace a broken window. When he arrived, he noticed that the house was open. The beds appeared to have been slept in, but not made. And the two cars were still in the garage. As he walked out onto the porch, he noticed a floodlight had been broken. Mr. Ebersold immediately became suspicious and called down to the courthouse. Edna Trepp, Judge Chillingworth's secretary, said the judge still had not arrived. As we mentioned previously, this was highly irregular for the judge not to be there preparing for his 9 o'clock hearing. In no time, the Chillingworth Beach House was no longer a tranquil, remote summer getaway. It was now swarming with about 100 law enforcement agents from around South Florida. The Chillingworths, from one of the most prominent families in all of Florida, had vanished. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein.